Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm Jeremy. And this is a weekly podcast that deep dives into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. So beautiful, so weird. So, I've noticed that your favorite thing, especially this winter, has been meteorologists or weathermen um, (laughs) popping up on, like, Facebook Live. Yes, yes. So, (laughs) I love the fact that they now work from home, and their source of meteorological information is by looking out the window. (laughs) And they love to uh, Facebook... To live stream, like, wow, the weather in Boise is raining right now and it's coming down hard. It's raining cats and dogs. And I'm like, gee, thanks, weatherman. You live in Boise. That storm already passed by me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for the insight, weather person. I'm glad you get paid for this. Yes, yes. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about weather and the study of meteorology nice so where it kind of all began in america yes but first we'll do some presidential trivia so which president was the first and only to admit to have seen a ufo was it eisenhower no are you just saying that i'm just i'm saying it because it's not eisenhower dang it (laughs) But I will tell you the answer. At, at the, the end of the episode. Yeah, we get it. <laughs> Gotta wait 30 minutes for this. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason you're here, right? Is because of the great presidential trivia yeah, every yes, week. Yes. You don't even care about the story that I've poured my heart and soul into all week yes. to write for you. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm interested, especially because okay. it's about weather, weather persons. Yeah. <laughs> On October 26, 1825, the Erie Canal that created a navigable water route between the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes was finally finished. The canal helped New York City overtake Philadelphia as America's largest port. So not only was it America's largest city, but America's largest port now. Hmm. Americans along the canal were so excited to see this mass project completed and thousands of people flocked to the waterfront to hold parties and parades along the canal. Nice. And they would like not they would hold parties in the towns, but they would also like decorate their boats like as like a floating parade. Mm-hmm. And then people would just like cheer and Yeah. Tom Brady would Tom Brady get in his was yacht, there throwing the Lombardi. <laughs> throwing the Lombardi trophy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, basically that, but in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, yeah. The state of New York started its canal celebration with 32-pound cannons set every 10 miles along the 400-mile route. This was a big, big deal. Yeah. The first cannon fired was aboard the steamboat Seneca Chief in Buffalo, and then each cannon down the line was fired all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. That's cool. Along with the cannon fire, every gun that was recovered from the Battle of Lake Erie, a decisive naval win from the War of 1812, was then discharged. At each town along the canal, citizens set off fireworks along with the church bells ringing and the local marching bands paraded down the streets. Basically, they were like, hey, whatever has, whatever goes boom, or (laughs) makes loud noise, we're bringing it out for the canal celebration. The next day, a storm rolled in and rained out any plans of continuing the canal parties. 
opinion began to spread that all of the noise had caused the rain. <laughs> so this wasn't an entirely new idea. Yeah. Like that noise, too much noise caused rain. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when a storm would roll in, churches would ring their bells hoping to divert the storm mm-hmm. away from the town. Like just scare it away. Su- just actually sucking it in. <laughs> yeah. Or um, there was a lot of talk about battles mm-hmm. causing storms. Huh. Um, some of it was just like, that's the God's way or God's way of cleansing mm-hmm. after so much violence. Mm-hmm. In 1842, the U.S. government hired its first official meteorologist, James Pollard Epsi. Is this the guy that went up in the hot air balloon? I don't believe so. You know what I'm talking about? But I know who you're talking about. That movie that we just watched? Yeah, no, that guy was from, that guy was British. Oh, oh boo. <laughs> <laughs> so he was hired to build a national weather forecasting network that was connected by telegraph lines. Mm-hmm. Basically, the best way to predict what weather is going to happen is to hear what just what weather just happened in the town nearby. Right. So that's basically <laughs> what the weather predicting service was. Yeah. It's like, do you just get rain? Is it headed this way? Then I predict we will also get rain. <laughs> Epsi believed that storms were caused by warm, humid air that rose in a column. Which only works if the storm's moving in the correct direction that the information's coming from, Well, that's from, why right? they'd be like, is it moving this way? That's no. A- then I predict sun, sunny weather. Right. And that's like the weatherman that lives... On the east side of the valley, when all of our weather travels from west to east, it's like, thanks, weatherman, you're announcing the rain that has literally (laughs) hit 90% of everybody else that lives in the Treasure Valley. Right. (laughs) Yeah, we've, uh, the weathermen have now reverted back to 1800s style (laughs) reporting. Yeah. Except for they're using the internet and live streaming. Yes. (laughs) So Epsi believed that storms were caused by warm, humid air that rose in a column Versus large amounts of noise. He's like, I'm not... I'm a scientist. I don't really believe in large amounts of noise causing rain. Mm-hmm. I think it's this scientific thing. I mean, noise can be scientific. Sure. You know what I'm saying, though. <laughs> so Yes, you're talking about the field of meteorology. <laughs> yes. So, Epsi lobbied to have the government maintain large timber lots that stretched from the Great Lakes to the Gulf of Mexico that could be set ablaze when rain was needed. So his thinking is because he thinks that rain is caused by humid air rising, that if then you just set off a big old fire, that'll cause it to rain. Hmm. Now, there's a bunch of other scientists that say, we have a ton of fires out in the western United States. These fires get huge, and then there's no rain. Yeah. So we don't know how good your hypothesis is. Literally, we have to wait until winter to put those fires out. Yeah. We just got to let them burn. Which is more of a seasonal change and not weather. Right. (laughs) Southerners were worried that if Epsi's theory was correct, it would place the power of weather making into the federal government's hands. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, the South was already (laughs) having some troubles at this time with the federal government and Mm. not wanting to be told what to do as far as. So the slavery goes. So the 1800s chemtrail was a giant swath of lot of timber. Trees, that, yeah. <laughs> that would just be on fire in flames. Yeah, which also seems dangerous. <laughs> One Kentucky senator argued that the government might enshroud us in continual clouds and indeed falsify the promise that the earth should be no more submerged 
and if possesses the power of causing rain, he may also possess the power of withholding it. Hmm. So he's saying, you want to give the federal government power to make the next flood? Hmm. Hmm. Probably not. Yeah. Throughout the 1830s and 40s, Southern congressmen blocked bills and funding for controlled burns that would produce <laughs> rain. Allegedly. Allegedly, because nobody knows because they keep blocking the bills. Right. And held up Epsi as a symbol of government overreach. A South Carolina senator in the 1850s declared, I would not trust such a power to this Congress. Rain is a power which none but God can rule with justice. As long as you leave it to the temptation of selfish man, it will go to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. Hmm. Which I get what they're saying. Yeah. But but we know about weather, so. (laughs) You You can't blame them too much. Right. They just don't know. When the Civil War began, many battles were fought in rainy and muddy conditions that many attributed to the large amounts of artillery fire. Oh, you mean in the South? Yes. Where there's rain, lots of rain, (laughs) even though we haven't had large battles there. (laughs) Stop making so much sense. (laughs) We aren't to that part of the story yet. Okay. And a letter to the American Journal of Science and Arts, J.C. Lewis, wrote, The discharge of heavy artillery at contiguous points produces such a concussion that the vapor collects and falls generally in unusual quantities the same day or the days following. In 1871, retired Civil War General Edward Powers published his paper titled War and the Weather, or The Artificial Production of Rain. In the paper, Powers reviewed around 200 battles that showed that rain usually followed an artillery barrage within a day or two. Powers proposed taking 200 siege guns of various calibers out of the federal arsenal at Rock Island, Illinois, to be used for two experiments. One, to see if a storm could be created out of clear skies with the gunfire. And two, to just blow some shit. (laughs) And two, (laughs) to see if an approaching storm could be deviated from its natural course with gunfire. Mm. Basically, three, these guys just just blow some shit. These guys just want to shoot into the sky. (laughs) Right. (laughs) However, several scientists were wary of this theory (laughs) that heat or noise could cause rainfall instead. The storms during the Civil War happened because the war was fought during rainy times in some of the <laughs> wettest regions of the United States. <laughs> like, hello, scientists here. Yes. We're, so here's the thing about correlation and causation. Right, right. And uh, my, here's some other data points that yeah, we should look at. Yeah, yeah. That's like, uh, I had this this math teacher in high school, and we were doing correlation and causation right and so the first thing he did was he put up a map or a, a graph and it was like uh the total like i think it was like pounds of ice cream sold in the number of drownings and they were like by month and so it was like pounds of ice cream sold and the number of drownings was the other bar so like bar in, graph. so like in august the yeah, number so, of ice cream sold and the number yeah, of drownings like June, are July, off the chart. August is just like the highest amounts of ice cream sold and the number of drownings are just like, you know, way up there. And then like January, December, January, February is like very little ice cream sold and very few drownings. Yeah. And my mind was blown. <laughs> You're like, what is ice cream doing to these people? <laughs> right, right. And then he was like, no, no, it's <laughs> not the missing, point. <laughs> You're missing it. You're missing it. Come back. 
Stop uh, lobbying against the ice cream industry. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Anyways, it's a Mr. Caldwell, my, my favorite math teacher. He's great. Yes. So same thing. Just because <laughs> rain happens after a battle doesn't necessarily mean that the battle caused the rain. Right. But Congress said, shut up, nerds. <laughs> And decided to go ahead with experiments in rainmaking with gunfire. They said, mm-hmm. we want to blow stuff up. Stop yeah. ruining our fun yeah. with numbers and yeah. facts. Right. Go back to your dark corners. <laughs> Four eyes. <laughs> that was officially what Congress said. Yeah. <laughs> in 1890, a U.S. senator from Illinois named Charles Benjamin Farwell, who also happened to own a large amount of ranch land in Texas. And guns. <laughs> so Texas. many guns was struggling with a drought that was wreaking havoc on his land used for cattle range. Hmm. He pushed a bill through Congress that allocated about nine thousand dollars, which would be about two hundred sixty thousand dollars today, mm-hmm. for a series of field experiments that would focus on rainmaking by concussion and would be ran by the Department of Agriculture's Division of Forestry. The chief of the Division of Forestry, Bernhard Fernau, complained that he had neither the men nor means to detonate large amounts of explosives into the skies and didn't think it would work anyways. (laughs) He's like, this is a stupid idea and I don't want to do it. (laughs) So eventually he made enough of a fuss. They're like, fine, we won't make you do it. And the project was taken from Fernau and passed along to the assistant agricultural secretary. But he didn't want to do the project either. <laughs> he also thought it was dumb. Dun, 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 it's dun. like these all these people that have like know something about science and weather. like and weather and just like are like, well listen to the scientists that say that this isn't gonna work. Mm-hmm. And like, hey, we don't wanna do it. We don't want no part in it. Mm-hmm. So the assistant secretary instead handed the project over to special agent Robert George Dyronforth. I was gonna say the Department of Defense. <laughs> Dyron Forth was born in Chicago and earned his degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Heidelberg in Germany. He then served as a war correspondent during the 1861 Austro-Prussian War and then returned to the U.S. where he eventually earned the rank of major in the Union Army during the Civil War. After the Civil War ended, Dyron Forth became a patent lawyer in Washington, D.C., where several clients came to him with rainmaking invention applications and he became enamored with the idea of rainmaking himself. <laughs> so this guy, they found somebody who's stoked mm-hmm. to do this project. He's all right. in. Yeah. In August of 1891, Dyron Forth arrived by train to Midland, Texas, where he had already sent a freight car that was filled with mortars, casks, <laughs> barometers, electrical conductors, seven tons of cast iron borings, six kegs of blasting powder, eight tons of sulfuric acid, one ton of potash, 500 pounds of manganese oxide, devices for creating oxygen and hydrogen, 10 and 20 foot tall muslin balloons, and supplies for building large kites. <laughs> He's ready. So this is like the ultimate like Benjamin Franklin key on a kite. Now yes. we're touching This bombs. is like <laughs> Benjamin Franklin with a key on a kite, but like times one million. Because <laughs> now there are bombs attached now, to the kites. Bi- yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's like, what's the best way to bomb the sky? Put a bomb on a kite. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's probably not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> then Dyron Forth and his small group that were wearing pith helmets and knee-high hunting boots. <laughs> I don't know why that was their outfit of choice. Uh, 
what was the helmet? A pith helmet. It's oh. like a, you think of like safari. Here, I'll look up a picture for you. Yeah. But, I mean, the knee-high boots make sense because it's about to rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be better if they were like, yeah, just in rain gear. They're like, why aren't you wearing this? We're about to cause so much rain. That's a pith helmet. Okay. Nice. They're basically in safari attire. Yeah. Why? I don't know. They no. went to Texas? Yeah. But, like I said, the boots work because it's going to rain. Well, yes. <laughs> So they were met by local cowboys, who probably made fun of their outfits, <laughs> and who loaded up the supplies into mule-drawn wagons and took it 20 miles to Senator Farwell's cattle ranch. Once to the ranch, Dyron Forth's group and the cowboys worked together over the next week to set up a series of battle lines. In the front line, there were 60 homemade mortars pointed at the sky at 45-degree angles and were spaced about 50 yards apart. Along this line, the team also plugged several prairie dog and badger holes with sticks of dynamite. <laughs> yeah, see, this is just fun for them. Like, there's <laughs> no science here. About, about half a mile behind the first line was the second line that was made up of homemade electrical kites, which I assume is just, they called them electrical kites, but I think from what I read, it's just like bombs, like, or just like explosives with fuses attached to kites. Mm-hmm. Um, and the kites were huge. They were all about the size of a family dinner table. Dang. Yeah. Which I didn't get any actual measurements because in America, we <laughs> we just measure by whatever we yeah, see. Common. So common like, yeah, there's about size of a dinner table. Yeah, like, okay. <laughs> because there weren't enough men to fly all the kites, the kites were tied to any bush they could find. <laughs> like sagebrush what have you because it's texas yeah yeah which sounds like a terrible idea (laughs) and in between each kite were several mortars Hmm. another half mile behind that line was the third and final line this line was comprised of 10 and 20 foot tall balloons that would be inflated with hydrogen that had fuses attached so that they would explode in the sky nice yeah you got your exploding kites and your exploding balloons take this sky yeah Give us rain. Give us what we want. (laughs) On August 9th, General Powers joined Dyron Forth at the ranch in Texas. The team decided to shoot off some practice charges because they want to blow stuff up. It's a rehearsal. Yeah, it's a rehearsal. (laughs) The next day, it rained, and someone telegraphed Senator Farwell with the news, who then turned around and informed the newspapers. Headlines like, They made rain. Heavy rain fell, extending many miles and made the heavens leak, began popping up all over the country. Oh, no. It wasn't, it was like a skiff of rain. Oh, really? Yeah, it wasn't much. It kind of drizzled. But they made some rain, and that was just rehearsal. Yeah. So they're like, what's going to happen when we set off our balloons and kites? Yeah. 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 It's going to rain. It's going to (laughs) rain. When the real experiments began, only two periodicals sent reporters to cover it even though it was huge news across the country. The two periodicals were Farm Implement News and the Texas Farm and Ranch. (laughs) All you need is seven tons (laughs) of explosives. (laughs) To make it rain. To make it rain. All three of the lines had problems during the experiment. The homemade mortars barely made any sound. Like, they really didn't even explode that much. Mm -hmm. 
and the dynamite stuck in prairie dog holes barely made an effect outside the holes themselves. They just caved in the prairie dog holes. because right, they're in the ground. <laughs> right. The balloons were released, but the fuses were too long that only one balloon actually exploded, and that was miles away from the ranch. <laughs> the reporters that were there reported bombs that would go off at wrong times and several bushfires being started because you tied your bomb kites to bushes. <laughs> So they said, like, a lot of the time was just spent putting out fires that these people started. Yep. I've been there before in Texas. (laughs) Starting fires? Mm -hmm. You have done that before. Yeah. Do you want to tell that story? It was government authorized, so it's okay. (laughs) Okay. I don't need to explain. Okay. Or implicate myself. (laughs) No rain followed after the first day of the experiments, but Dyron Forth reported dark clouds that were seen to form in the west-southwest and rain fell from them heavily, accompanied by lightning that he attributed to the one balloon that had managed to explode (laughs) miles away. He was like, well, we got one balloon to explode. And it was over there. And it was over there, and there were some dark-looking clouds over there where it exploded. (laughs) Then Dyron Forth's team went on a 10-day bombing spree, where they just set off the rest of their explosives. Yeah. Where they set off mortars and exploded more balloons just whenever they felt like it. There was no rhyme or reason... To when or where they did it. Okay, do you, one thing you never explained. How much booze did they have on this adventure? Uh, I don't believe there were any official, records. Official, official records. records. Oh, there had to be so much booze, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Over the next ten days, the ranch experienced rainfall here and there. <laughs> no one actually measured the rain, because why would you do science <laughs> during an experiment? <laughs> and the reporters stated that it was nothing but a sprinkle. <laughs> The Farm Implement News reporter also pointed out in his article that it was the rainy season for Midland due to the North American monsoon that sweeps over the region between mid-June and mid-September. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. After the experiments in Midland ended, Dyron Forth took his team on a small tour to El Paso, Corpus Christi, and San Diego, Texas. I just imagine them gallivanting across Texas, like, With just celebrating. With all the booze and all the and bombs. Just celebrating, like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, we made a rain. We did it. <laughs> and they would I just... I'm right. I'm right. And they would just shoot whatever they had left up into the sky, and then took credit for any rain that fell, even if it had already been predicted by the Weather Bureau, (laughs) or storms that took place at a considerable distance, and rain that had fell before any explosions were even set off. Hmm. It knew. It knew it was coming with the bombs. (laughs) It got scared and it rained anyways. (laughs) Despite the lack of evidence of the experiments actually working, newspapers just took Dyron Forth's team's reports and issued them as truth. (laughs) The Washington Post described the .02 inches that fell on August 18th as a hard rain. And the New York Sun called the experiment a great success and that more than one congressman will go to Washington this winter with a rain-making bill in his pocket. (laughs) Everybody's so excited about this. They're like, you guys, all we had to do was bomb the sky. (laughs) A meteorologist, George Curtis, had been assigned by Congress to monitor and evaluate the experiment's findings. Curtis's report labeled Dyron Forth as an inexcusable bungler, his botch work a burlesque on science and common sense. (laughs) 
However, Curtis's official report on the experiments was mysteriously never published. Huh, I wonder why. And the following year, Congress approved another $10,000 for more <laughs> rainmaking experiments. Uh, you gotta love geez. Congress. They're yeah. like, again, they said, shut up, nerd. Sit down. Yes. <laughs> Go back to where we you belong. like blowing up the sky. <laughs> even if it only works a little bit. They're like, look, it's working. And he's like, no, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, but we feel it's working. Yes. He's like, but here's all the like things that say it's not here's working. Here's the science that says this is the normal, the exact normal amount of rain to expect. Yeah, but they're like, but we follow our hearts, not our heads. <laughs> Congress, they're just full of, it's just full of romantics. Yes. Idealists and romantics. Yep. In 1892, Dyron IV continued his rain-making experiments in Fort Myer near Washington, D.C., where he tested several new explosives. <laughs> oh, gosh. Which I assume is just making different kinds of bomb balloons and bomb kites. <laughs> right. The explosives didn't result in any rain, but did upset many Washington, D.C. residents with all the noise he was making. <laughs> One article was like, instead of actual rain, it rained down like curse words or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Complaints. Yes. Especially because he would set them off when people were trying to sleep. Oh, I'm sure. You're not you're not doing that during the day. It's not as cool to see something blow right. up in the day. And you're not you're usually not as drunk during the day as you are at nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> mm, usually. Usually. <laughs> Darren Forth moved his experiments back to Texas. They started in San Antonio, but moved on after blowing out the windows in a downtown <laughs> hotel. So they moved on and established Camp Farwell near Alamo Heights. The whole week of Thanksgiving, federal troops were brought in to help blast at the skies, which I'm sure they loved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Best Thanksgiving ever. <laughs> <laughs> However, with little rain occurring by early December, people began to speculate the, that the explosions didn't actually cause rainfall. What? So like, you guys have been shooting into the sky all week while we were trying to eat Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> There's literally been no rain. <laughs> Starting to suspect something. Yeah. Hmm. People began to call Dyron Forth dry henceforth. <laughs> Ouch. That's a blow to the ego. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> How clever. Yeah. Dyron Forth then wrote to the U.S. Agriculture Secretary to ask about getting the other half of his $5,000 budget to continue his experiments. The secretary wrote back, we do not... And you know this guy's not paying himself with that money. He's just taking that money to buy bombs. Like, yeah. buy explosives. Oh, like. yeah. He's, like, I believe... I 100% believe that this guy has spent all his money on bombs. Right. None of it's gone to pay himself or any of the people that have helped him. No. Like. But they're paid in experience and fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the secretary wrote back, we do not desire to cannonade the clouds any longer at government expense. <laughs> And continue to say that the rest of the funds would just go back to the treasury. <laughs> nice. The Washington... So Congress got a little... They finally wised up to... Either that or it was the U.S. Agriculture Department. Because oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's still under them. Yeah, and they're yeah. like, okay, we've had enough. Yeah. The Washington Post reported that the whole hullabaloo did not lead to any more water than when furnished a canary bird with its morning bath. <laughs> Boom. Roasted. <laughs> Ouch. Need some aloe for that burn? 
Dyronforth then went back to working as a patent lawyer until he died in 1910 at the age of 66. Still wondering, do explosives make rain? Good, and I, um, I truly believe that they do not. Mm, I'm on the fence on this one. <laughs> like, mostly because I just want a, fu- a government-funded grant to try that one out myself. I think if there's anything, we've, seeing is believing. I think if there's anything we've learned here at America the Bazaar is that it's you. You can usually get Congress to give you money to put bombs on something. Yep, bats. Bats. Um, the moon. The moon. <laughs> really, kites. If, kites. <laughs> balloons. Really, if you just propose anything, you're yep. like, I'm going to do this. And they're like, no, we don't think that's a good idea. You're like, wait, wait, wait. There's bombs. But there's bombs. There's bombs. They're like, but, oh. But I put a bomb on go it. Go on. Continue. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> My interest has peaked. <laughs> there's anything all Americans love, it's bombs. <laughs> yes. Yes. Fourth of July, New Year's Eve. <laughs> Trying to change the weather. <laughs> We love bombs. Yeah. Um, so that's the story of when Congress tried to bomb the sky mm-hmm. to make rain. Yeah. My sources for this story are When the U.S. Government Tried to Make It Rain by Exploding Dynamite in the Sky by Katie Najimbadam. Rain, You Blasted Sky by Clay Coppage. Congress's Hairbrained Scheme to Shoot Rain <laughs> from the Skies by Cynthia Barnett. Oh, I love that one. That's a good one. All right. Presidential trivia. Hmm. Which president was the first and so far only president to admit to seeing a UFO? And you guessed Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. Which I think is good because that's about the time that yeah. I think that people were really noticing mm-hmm. UFOs. Yeah. It was actually Jimmy Carter. Okay, yeah. In, seven, in 1976. <laughs> in 1776. Jimmy Carter. <laughs> in 1976. Carter told the National Enquirer, a stand-up publication, social media or media outlet. I am convinced that UFOs exist because I've seen one. It was a very peculiar aberration, but about twenty people saw it. It was the darnest thing I've ever seen. It was big. It was very bright. It changed colors, and it was about the size of the moon. Hmm. We watched it for ten minutes, but none of us could figure out what it was. He went on to say, if I become president, I'll make every piece of information this country has about UFO sightings available to the public and the scientists. One thing is for sure, I'll never make fun of people who say they've seen unidentified objects in the sky. Well, that's how Jimmy Carter became president. Hmm. <laughs> because people wanted to know his, about it UFOs. Was on his UFO platform. <laughs> yeah. That's what the people wanted. Yeah. Did he? I don't know if I don't believe that he actually released that much or the government just didn't have very much on UFOs uh, back yeah, then. Yeah. I bet they did. Government knows. Oh, in the 70s? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They knew. They knew. They knew all about Those the UFOs. Sons of- I truly believe that most of it is the government's like, hey, Jimmy Carter got literally got into office and was like, okay, hey, we're releasing stuff about UFOs. And they're like, Jimmy, that was us. <laughs> Right. It was the U.S. government. Yeah. (laughs) That was a giant balloon. It was a bomb balloon. (laughs) Exactly. Bringing it all back. Yeah. (laughs) Closing the loop. All right. Well, while all of us are writing our proposals to Congress on what we can stick bombs on, Mm -hmm. we hope you stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, 
Stay weird, America. America.